Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Jordan, and I'm the adult ministry pastor here at Soul Sanctuary. And it is a pleasure to be able to uh, bring the life lesson this morning as we continue in our series through the book of Matthew. And at this point in the series, we're kind of getting close to the end here. And so we're getting to that point where Jesus today we're going to look at is about to be arrested. Um, things are about to happen with his disciples. And uh, it's going to lead to the cross. And so we're at that point. And today we find ourselves at a point where Jesus is about to be betrayed as well. And so let's pray and we'll get into this today. Father, I just thank you this morning for each person here. Thank you that you love us. And thank you for your word and the gift that it is to us. I pray, God, that you'd speak to us this morning through your word. Challenge us, encourage us, Lord, and help us become more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So throughout history, we have had certain times where people had two radically different ways of understanding things. And I don't think that this is foreign in the culture that we live in today. But what usually happens when something changes is I find it can cause tension between the groups because somewhere along the way, things have changed. What once was the norm is no longer the norm. And in fact, many times the old normal just becomes extinct and we kind of, it ceases to exist. And it's no longer the way we, think, we see things. It's no longer the way that things are. And so, have you ever been in a position where you once saw things this way, but now you see them this way? And a shift is taking place. Thank you, Jordan. I appreciate that. <laughs> a shift is taking place. A shift in perspective that really changes your worldview. Well, we've seen some of this throughout history. So let's look at a couple of examples this morning. Let's start with the printing press, all right? Up until the printing press was invented, things were communicated by word of mouth. And what you knew was really quite limited. You didn't know much about what was happening a few hundred miles away. Uh, if you were, were going to hear the news, if you were going to hear stuff that was happening in a far off location, it had to have traveled by word of mouth. And so you relied on people to carry the news and to carry messages and to communicate with one another. It built a strong sense of tribal community before they had the printing press. Um, from a, a biblical perspective, the printing press also in a lot of ways resuscitated the letters of Paul. And it helped to cultivate the reasoning skills necessary in, our, in, in the culture to comprehend his message. And so printing changed us as people who just simply kind of relied on emotion and mysticism and intuition as our reasoning skills. And it really made us prefer cognitive models of processing things, processing things. It made us pr prefer to be intellectual rather than rational about our faith and not rely so much on the emotion and the mystical side of things. We started to become thinkers, if I could say it like that. And so reading and writing was available to more and more people. And as that happened, the community was no longer needed to retain teachings, training, and in some cases, even identity. But people spent more time in private and the isolation that naturally followed really created the conditions necessary for a strong um, sense of individualism to emerge in that culture. And so tribal bonds were weakened as life became easier to do alone. You see, the printing press didn't just affect our ability to read and access information, but it actually affected how we did life with one another. 
And I know because I was there. No, no, I'm kidding. I, I really wasn't there. I read about it, okay? And so we see that with printing, which was invented so more people would have access to information and that people would be able to grow in their learning skills, it also transformed how people lived. And its effects are very present among us today. And life before the printing press would seem like something that was so foreign and so difficult for any of us to believe. After the printing press, we fast-tracked that, and we ended up getting the Internet, right? Now, with the Internet, you had all the information that you ever wanted, right? At the, at the controls of a mouse, a keyboard, a monitor, and a hard drive. You no longer really needed to read as much because the Internet was quicker, and especially as high speeds came about, right? We became more and more reliant on it to the point where when I'm at Starbucks sometimes I've actually heard people complain about how slow the Wi-Fi is to the staff right and I, I, I one time I was like well that's kind of that's kind of tough to do why are you doing that it's free and, th and then I realized one day when I wanted to complain about how slow the Wi-Fi was I realized that's why people did it I guess but anyone who remembers the original dial-up internet that first came about has already experienced a paradigm shift when using the new high-speed formats of the internet the internet changed the way we research things. It, it changed the way we communicated with one another. And in a lot of ways, it, it really changed the way we spend the majority of our time. It was a paradigm shift. We once thought a certain way, and this new technology brought, a line, brought about a new line of thinking. Think about cell phones. Um, you know, literally cell phones change the way we communicate with each other. Remember when you used to actually have to talk to people? I remember uh, dialing phones when I was younger on that little ring dial, right? And, you know, not that I was there for a lot of that, but I remember doing it. And then, you know, touch dial came in. And then I remember that if you owned a cell phone when I was younger, like when I was in junior high, you had to be rich or something, right? Like you really had to have it going on to have a cell phone. And now it's odd if you don't have a cell phone. And if you don't own one, well, you know, you probably know the art of being present better than I do. And so, good on you. But it's amazing to think about how people once saw the world compared to how we now see the world. And it would be more difficult to live during one of these changes, I think. Because the more you got used to something, the more difficult it would be to embrace something new. I mean, how many of us would say this morning, maybe not out loud, but probably in our hearts, that dealing with change is difficult sometimes. Dealing with change is a struggle. It stretches us. It frustrates us. It forces us to adapt. It forces us to move away from what we're comfortable with, what we're familiar with. And uh, the process isn't always as easy as we might think it is. And I say all of that this morning. I'm going to take us back to Jesus here, okay? To bring us to our text today. And our people today that we read about in the book of Matthew as we're getting into the last few chapters of this book. The people of Jesus' day, they had their systems. They had their traditions. They had their customs of what religion looked like, of what God required of us, of what following God looked like, of what successful people looked like. And they knew what true power was in their culture. And Jesus arrives on the scene not to endorse the people's way, not to embrace the people's way, but to challenge it, and to critique it, and to call it out for what it is, and to offer a new way of seeing things, to offer a new way of living, to offer a new way in which people would now relate to God, and people would now treat one another. 
And this has been much of our theme throughout the book of Matthew. In fact, when we first started this series, we, we titled it Upside Down Kingdom. But in these last chapters, and really these last days for Jesus' ministry on earth, we see the tension of it all really starts to rise to the surface. And now action is being taken against Jesus, this guy who came to critique, this guy who came to call out, this guy who came to offer something new in the midst of a culture that had already had it figured out for themselves and already thought they knew the way. So let's read. Long text this morning. Matthew chapter 26, if you have your Bibles, your phones, uh, whatever you may have, uh, feel free to, to pull them out or follow on the screen. Here it is. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from chief priests and elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once at Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi. And kissed him. And Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. And then the men stepped forward. They seized Jesus and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legion of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you didn't arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and they fled. And those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance. Right up to the courtyard of the high priest, he entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they didn't find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow says, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need to hear any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face, struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you. Our text today flows from last week. For context, Jesus had just finished praying in the garden of Gethsemane, which was very much for him, I believe, a time of temptation. There likely was this temptation in that moment uh, to choose safety and to choose comfort. And in some ways, you know, just take the easy way out. 
And yet Jesus models his devotion and models his obedience to his father's plans and his words, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Yielding your desires, your plans, and your preferences to another person is never easy, is it? It's never easy. Even in trivial matters, sometimes it's difficult. How many of you like movies? Anyone like watching movies at home, right? How many of you know that even when the fam gets together or you and your significant other get together and it comes time to choose the movie, that yielding your will sometimes in that process, the struggle is real, right? It can get difficult. You know, when you want a thriller, you want a drama, you want a documentary, and you're offered a rom-com, and you're sitting there like, okay, uh, yeah, yay, date night, movie night, let's watch, right? You know, I promise this isn't autobiographical for me, okay? This is not, you know, my example per se here. Just an example I'm using. Yielding your will, even in trivial matters, isn't always easy. And yet, this was no trivial matter that Jesus was working through here. But Jesus was going to yield to his father's plans and lay down his life, literally, is what he was doing. And for Jesus, it was his delight. It was his joy to please his father. But how many of us know that we struggle with this today, personally? Yielding our will, even in the smallest matters, can be tough, can be difficult for us. But laying down his life, here we see Jesus' heart. We see his heart on display and what he was all about. And so in our text, we have Judas approaching him and greets Jesus with the words, Greeting, Rabbi, and gave him a kiss. And we must kind of like gasp when we read something like this. Because it's not that we're just seeing a disciple betray his teacher. Rabbi means teacher. It's someone who you respect. It's someone who has shown you the way. It's not just that we're seeing a disciple betray his teacher and his leader here whom he loves or loved. But he's doing it in such a way of warmth. It should make it sting even more that he kisses him in the process. And we can't fully figure out Judas's full motives here, but the scriptures give us some clues. Most scholars that I read about this past week argue that it was because he wanted money and he was filled with greed. And therefore, he made a deal to benefit himself with riches and with wealth and to advance himself. And he chose his will, chose his desires here in this case. Some scholars I was reading this past week actually uh, came up with a theory that I found just kind of interesting to play with. But... They, they, they argued that it, was, it, was, it possibly could have been. The reason why Judas did this was possibly to hopefully push Jesus into action early. Into military action, so to speak. So that Jesus would take down Rome, which is what many of the people had been hoping for during his time on earth. A political victory from a political messiah. And so there's some scholars who entertain the idea that maybe Judas was just pushing him into this early. Maybe by doing this, he thought he was going to get the plans unfolding and everything hurrying. I'm not willing to fully embrace that. But either way, we do know this for sure, is that Judas had chosen to sell Jesus out to the authorities for a bag of silver. And not even much silver. If you look back and read, not even much silver. And what's even more interesting is how Jesus greets Judas calling him friend. Do what you came for. And so some scholars even argue about that. They argue about the exact wording. Did Jesus say, do what you came for? Or did he say, are you sure you want to do this? Either way, it is the word friend that Jesus says that should cause us to kind of catch our breath in this moment. 
Because apparently friendship for Jesus does not stop even with betrayal. Even though it is now tinged with deep sadness. And so the men step forward after this and they seize Jesus. And so when we read through a passage like this, we have to ask ourselves a few questions. And the first question we're going to ask ourselves is, is why did they arrest Jesus and want him put to death? Well, there's many reasons, but namely that Jesus was a threat to the religious establishment in Israel. He taught as one with authority, the scriptures tell us. He challenged their interpretation of the Torah by the Pharisees. He forgave people apart from the sacrificial system and its instructions. He ate with unclean tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. He healed on the Sabbath. He had proclaimed what he called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It's used interchangeably throughout the Gospels. And they saw Jesus as a false prophet and feared that he was stirring up the people against their nation, against the practice of the Torah and the temple system that they held so dearly. And so that's all a brief description of many of the things we have talked about Jesus doing and, and, and teaching in the book of Matthew so far. And right here in the garden, we're about to see the tension of these two kingdoms come together. In this interaction and in this moment in the garden, it's, it's, it's like the climax where we see the collision of two kingdoms. Two different ways of thinking. Two different ways of living. Two different ways of approaching God. Two different ways of doing life. As we taught through the book of Matthew early on, I mentioned this earlier, we, we titled our series Upside Down Kingdom. And we did this because the kingdom that Jesus came to set up and establish was so unlike the kingdoms of the world. There was such a paradigm shift, such an opposite way of thinking, that to our natural senses, to our natural inclinations, it runs contrary to the ways of the world. It values the opposite of what we value. It turns our thinking upside down. And so, in the garden, Jesus is being arrested. And we have two kingdoms, fittingly at the end of the book, that will once again be in conflict. And we see this, this conflict between the kingdom of God versus the kingdom or the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus has been showing people what his kingdom is through word and through deed and through supernatural moments. He said things like the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. He redefines what true greatness is, showing us a kingdom that is fueled by service rather than just simply holding on to power. The kingdom of God teaches us the way of serving. And the problem in all this, as we've discussed, was that the religious leaders of the day already had their own way of knowing God. And they already had their own way to discern who was right and wrong. And who was in and who was out. And in their minds, they didn't need Jesus' kingdom. In fact, he was getting in the way of what they'd already had figured out. And so throughout the narrative, there has been this clash between the two. The tension between God's kingdom and the tension between the way of the religious system that they knew. And so what do we, what do we mean when we say the word kingdom? Well, the word kingdom is really an administration it's a way of ordering and getting things done. It's a way of ordering the society and getting things done. In this story, Jesus has one way of getting things done, and the world has another way of getting things done. We see two examples here in this story. Jesus' way 
and the way of the world. There's two ways. And ultimately, what defines these two kingdoms are their values. The kingdom of the world seems to value autonomy and fame and prestige and power and being at the top and riches and comfort and um, to be known by all and to have people see you and, and praise you. It, it valued all these kind of things. The kingdom of the world got things done through force. If you don't bend your knee, we will bend it for you. We don't ask, but we take matters into our own hands. Through coercion, we will coerce to get you to do what we need you to do. Through manipulation, we will make you think we are on your side. Meanwhile, we are just trying to achieve our own ends. It's through the means of money. We will buy our way to the top, to power. That's the way of the kingdom of the world that Jesus lived in. And in a lot of ways, this is very uh, reminiscent of our world and the ways of our world to an extent when you stop and think about it. And so they are upset with Jesus, and they're finding him to be a big problem for their, to their ends and their ways. And so they plan to get rid of him, and they make this plan to arrest him. And the religious leaders, how do they show up to arrest Jesus? Well, the scripture says they show up with clubs and swords, ready to coerce, ready to manipulate, ready to get their way. They're ready for a fight. And Jesus' response to them when he sees them coming with clubs and swords in verse 48 is interesting. And he says to them, am I leading a rebellion? That you guys had to show up with clubs and swords? That you need to approach me in this way? Is that what I've been doing? And no, that's not what Jesus has been doing. Jesus isn't leading some kind of violent rebellion here. But I will say this, that the introduction of the kingdom of God is nothing short of revolutionary. Nothing short of a revolution. Because it's going to change everything. And the kingdom of God does not advance like other kingdoms or accomplish things like the kingdom's other kingdoms accomplish things, but it's a clash with the current kingdom. An entire changing of ideas. Everything must change. Jesus said it like this in John chapter 18. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. My kingdom is from another place. My kingdom is not of this world. He could not be more clearer. Jesus' kingdom is very, very, very different than that of the world's. And we see it in its values. And so what is the kingdom of God value? We talked about what the kingdom of the world at this time valued. What is the kingdom of God value? Well, it values servanthood. It values forgiveness. It values the weak becoming strong. It values the first becoming last, the last becoming first. It values humility and grace and mercy. Refusing to judge one another. Ignoring our specks and seeing our own, ignoring other people's specks, sorry, and seeing our own planks, if I could say it like that, in our eyes. And so with these values, how do we get things done in the kingdom of God? Well, it isn't through coercion or force or manipulation or even guilt, but it's through service. It's through serving one another. Look at Jesus. Look at his example. How did he accomplish salvation and the forgiveness of sins? Well, he did it through his sacrifice for others. The way of the kingdom is the way of serving God. The way of the kingdom is the way of serving one another. And the motivation for all this isn't fear, isn't guilt, isn't something that you're going to necessarily, you know, weigh you down and make you feel bad. But the motivation for this is love. And the way of the world may try to scare you into things. You know, if you don't obey, you know, the sword will come down. But the way of the kingdom of God motivates 
It's I'll love you even if you don't love me back. I'll sacrifice for you even if you will never sacrifice for me. You see, Jesus in this moment is actually redefining power as service rather than as force. Power as serving. And that's why there's a clash, and that's why there's this tension here. If you were to make a list about discipleship and what discipleship involves from what we read of in the gospel, and you're to ask what are one of the top things that we would see on that list, one of the first things you will see on a list of discipleship is serving, people who serve, people who serve in ministry, people who serve one another. And it's a reversal of simply being self-focused and only worrying about our own personal gain. But it's to take your power, take your gifting, and instead of using it for yourself only, you give of your time, talent, and treasure to serve God and to serve other people around you. If you want to become more like Jesus, then you must recognize that the Son of Man came to seek, but he also came to serve and not necessarily to be served. But I think when we read a story like this, we sense the tension. And there's two different directions that we can be pulled in inwardly. And in Jesus' response to Peter, who tries to forcefully defend him, you know, Peter just gets all like crazy, right? Pulls the sword out, whack, right? And, you know, takes off an ear kind of thing. But in Jesus' response to Peter, who forcefully tries to defend him, what does Jesus say? Well, Jesus says, do you not think I could just call a bunch of angels down? If I can get out of this, if I wanted to, I could. And you know why this is all happening? It's happening because this will fulfill the scriptures. This will fulfill the prophecy of what the Bible has been teaching. Meaning this, Jesus is essentially telling the people arresting him, telling the people who put him on trial. He's essentially saying to them, you think that you're in control right now, but you're not in control right now. He even says to Pilate later on, the only power you have, you've been given from above. You're not in control right now. Jesus isn't giving them any credit here. This isn't about them. This isn't about their power, but it's about God's plan. It's about God's will. And Jesus' life isn't taken from him, but he willingly lays it down for you and for me. And so the posture of a cruciform life, the posture of the new kingdom of God is a posture of sacrifice. It's a posture of serving others. In Jesus, we see that he could call down power. He can call down 12 legion of angels. You know, he can serve himself right now if he wanted to. But he says, essentially, I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to hold back my own power so that other people get served ultimately. And he models for us a new way in a new kingdom. And something that's tough to grasp, something that's tough to live out. I won't lie about it. And yet it is absolutely filled with grace and with beauty. And it begs the question, how are you, how am I following his example today? How do we serve people on a regular basis? Do we serve people on a regular basis? Is it something that we think about often? Is it something that comes to mind? In the video weekly, uh, Pastor Jordan was talking about different serving opportunities and, 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 and generosity and in a way of serving one another. Do we think about these things? How do we serve people on a regular basis? How do we avoid making things all about ourselves and so that we could see other people around us? As we continue to look at this portion this morning, I think we would be amiss not to look at these characters for a second 
and uh, focus on the three characters that we see in this scene. Can we maybe identify this morning with one of the characters in the story? How about Peter? See? The Gospel of John in John 18.10 tells us that this is Peter who strikes off this guy's ear, who sees the religious leaders coming with clubs and swords to arrest Jesus, and he gets very protective of the one he loves, and he moves into fight mode at this point. And I'm sure a lot of us can relate to this. He moves into fighting mode, overcome with emotion to defend Jesus, and pulls out his sword, cutting off the ear of the high priest's servant, only to find that this isn't what Jesus had in mind. Jesus' ways were different from his ways. Only to see that actually that's not the way that the kingdom of God works. And so Jesus says to him in verse 52, Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Jesus is saying to put the weapon away and not to bother fighting in that way. That any effort to defend Jesus' mission by force is doomed to failure. And that's true today. We only have to look at past examples like the Crusades to see a great example in missing the point, in missing the words of Jesus here. Peter lives in the tension of knowing what's right, but his emotions get the best of him. Have you ever been there? Your emotions ever get the best of you? You ever a person in tension like, like Peter is here? Have you ever been there when asking what would Jesus do is just super inconvenient in that moment? When it doesn't make any sense to your mindset? When you get overcome with emotion and you choose your own way, I can relate. And you think to yourself, you know, I could take care of this thing on my own right now. I have a solution. I have the power to act in this moment. But time and time again, we're drawn back to a new kingdom and a new way of thinking and a new way of seeing the world. And it's so different than what we naturally have maybe have processed. Maybe you relate to Judas here. Everyone's eyes go up, right? Huh? <laughs> but maybe you relate to Judas here in this story, which all of us immediately, we would go, no, 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 no. How could I ever relate to Judas? You know, I would never betray my friend with a kiss, right? I would never kiss my friend. First off, some of us are thinking, you know, as we look through something like this, but especially not to betray them. But think about it simply like this. Let's just, let's just simplify it here. Judas was so tempted and enticed by the kingdom of the world, that he gave up a friend for the lure of power and riches. That's essentially what he did. Judas, so enraptured by the things that he could get in this world, and that the world could offer him, he's willing to sacrifice the things that once meant a lot to him, that he loved so much, in order to get ahead personally himself. Ever been there? Willing to sacrifice things that once meant the world to you if it meant you could just get ahead personally? Can we relate to that? In Judas's case of betraying Jesus, you know, we hold this as a great offense, and we should. But when it comes right down to it, what he did was that he really chose the benefit of himself and to further advance himself here, even at the expense of someone that he loved. And that's something that we can always experience as humans or be tempted with. Or maybe we could relate with the disciples on this one. Or as the Gospel of Mark says, the naked guy. And I'm not making that up, okay? I'll show you the passage, okay? In Mark 14, right here. In Matthew, it says the disciples followed, then they fled. But Mark throws this in for some reason. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment 
was following Jesus, and when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. You know, that is just odd to me, right? It's like he's following Jesus, and not only does he take off, but here's my clothes, right? And he's gone. And he takes off. He pieces. He's, he's out of there. You know, I'm not even going to try to get into the theology of that this morning, if you're okay with that, okay? We're not going to break that down too much. But let's just keep moving on. Enough to say that, as Matthew said, the disciples did the same thing. They followed at a distance. And when things started to get tense, they, 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 they were out. They fled. They run. They took off. They were peacing in that moment. They were out. And it asks the question to us, have you ever found yourself so in fear, maybe of the kingdom of this world? Maybe a boss, maybe a friend, or maybe just people and their opinion of you that you've just, you know, you've fled and you've, you've abandoned core convictions that used to be there in moments like that. When things didn't make sense to you, and when you felt great pressure, and when you even felt some minor persecution, do we also flee and abandon our convictions and beliefs sometimes when this happens? First John, in the epistle, writes it like this. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. That's what we're talking about today. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. And the truth is, is that we live in tension between the two kingdoms, and sometimes we don't want to even admit it. You know, because there's one kingdom that's appealing to our flesh and telling us that, you know, power, fun, money, comfort, prestige makes life worth it. All the while knowing that the deepest truth for those of us who follow Jesus is that the real meaning of life is to know God and become like his son and to be a part of his kingdom work today. And this is where this text confronts us. And it's not the most feel-good message sometimes. But the text asks us, what kingdom are you pursuing? What kingdom are you most familiar with? Are you closest with? Are you intimate with? You see, Jesus became close and intimate with the, thing, the kingdom of the world, with money, power, authority. The values of the world became his own, and he ended up losing the meaning of life in the process. But Jesus became close to his father, and the values that that kingdom became his own, and he sacrificed for all of us, and he served, and he loved all, and Jesus was the light, is the light that shines even in the dark places today. And so what kingdom are you pursuing? Because if you pursue the kingdoms of this world, you will, you, you will reap the results of that pursuit. And it's never enough. It's never going to be enough. It's never going to satisfy. It's never going to make us whole as God can make us whole. Because if you value money the most, you'll always have greed. You'll never have enough. The fruit of that pursuit will never be seen. You'll never feel like you have enough. If you value power, you'll always feel small and weak and insignificant until you just get that position or that place of authority. You'll never feel like you have enough. Have you ever longed for the affirmation of other people, of people around you? In our culture, if all you search for is affirmation and all you're focused on is yourself, which makes you critical of others, it'll make you selfish. It doesn't help. This is the tension between what the world values and what God values. But there's also the opposite kingdom. The kingdom of God. And if we pursue that kingdom, then guess what? We also reap the fruit of that kingdom in our lives. When you value compassion, you will always be generous to others. 
if you value service, you will always be grateful and have gratitude in your hearts. If you value generosity, then you'll always have enough. If you value esteeming others above yourselves, then you're never going to feel slighted. If you value loving others, then you yourself will know true love. You see, in discussing these two kingdoms in his writings, in the book, The Joyful Christian, C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. If you value anything above living the way of the kingdom of God, knowing the Father, you'll miss it. You'll miss out. But when you give God the highest value in your life and you put him at the center and you get your joy there, then the earth is thrown in as well. And you get to enjoy life here as part of his kingdom and as part of his work that he's doing. But we have to decide which kingdom's values are ultimate in our lives. What are your values? When you look at the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world, where do you find yourself? That's what the passage asks us today. The passage also asks us, who's saving you? You see, Jesus stood the, the test and passed even when we couldn't. Um, gardens seem to play a big role all throughout Scripture. And I'll give you two occasions right now. It happened in the garden with Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis at the very beginning. And it happens in the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is about to, you know, face the cross and he's praying out to his father. But gardens seem to always play a prominent role in biblical locations where major events happen. And first we saw Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve in the garden were given a choice. And what did they choose? They chose their own desires before God's desires. And we could put our noses up at them if we want, you know, and, you know, we'd be foolish to do so. Because deep down inside, we know that we are guilty of doing the same thing. Time and time again. But Jesus is also faced with this test in the garden as he's praying. And he's about to die. And he knows exactly what's coming for him. He knows that he can call angels down. And that if he really wanted to, he could save himself here. He could choose to be selfish. He could choose to focus on himself. He could choose to skip it all. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he chooses the will of his Father. And he chooses to love us more. He chooses to love you more. And he gives himself for us. You see the beauty in that? Even when we may choose the world more than him, he still chose to love us more than anything else. And Maybe someone this morning just needs to hear that. Maybe we just need to hear that personally this morning. Because that, that's what this passage brings out for us. You see, Jesus was on a mission, and it was all about to get very painful. And even when he could choose himself, he didn't. He still chose us. And whatever kingdom you value most, that will affect how you live today. One kingdom will lead to ruin, but yet the other kingdom will lead to life. And every single person needs saving, but where are you looking for it? You see, Jesus has made a way for it in his death and his resurrection. So don't go looking for salvation where it can't be found like Judas did. And as they put Jesus on trial, they tried to find a charge against him, and they struggled to do so. And so they said, well, this guy said he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, not knowing that he was actually speaking of his own body and not their actual temple building. 
But they point to this as a way of accusing him. And they're, they're accusing him. They're throwing stuff at him. And Jesus stays silent. Because his desire here is not to please men, not to please himself necessarily, but to please the Father. And he knows that this is all part of the plan. And this is the plan from the beginning. And Jesus has chosen to model and establish a new kingdom and a new way of living. And he chose us even over himself. And in, th in this, he chose to please his Father. And so we are left after reading through something like this, after looking deep into it, and we can go further and further, but we're left with a couple of questions, and I'm going to leave these questions with you today. This is how we're going to end. Here's the first question. What kingdom are you pursuing? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of the world? And be real honest with yourself as you contemplate that, because whatever kingdom you live according to, you reap the the fruit from it or the not so fruit the second question I'll ask is what will you do when his kingdom challenges even your expectations and your desires because yielding our will is not an easy thing to do and there are going to be times when we're so sure of something and we want to fight for ourselves and we want to go for it right and God is going to nudge on our hearts and remind us that he was about a different way and that we also are about a different way. And so what kingdom will you pursue? Lord, help us. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you this morning for your word. I thank you, God, that it has power to, to, to judge the attitudes and motives of our hearts, Lord. And it has power to bring us closer to you and to make us more like you. And Lord, I just pray, God, that you would just take whatever was thrown out today, Lord God, and help us to to do some contemplation on what kingdom it is we are pursuing with our lives. Lord, give us the strength to be honest, Lord God. Give us the help we need, Holy Spirit, to make decisions for you and to live for you. Empower us, Lord. Encourage us. But Lord, I pray, God, that you would challenge us as well. And Lord, thank you so much, Lord God, that even in the midst of the most painful time of life, Lord, you still chose us. God, we love you. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for your grace. In your name. Amen. Amen. Can I have everyone stand this morning? Leave that with us today in the ancient times. Let me leave a blessing with you as we go. In ancient times, the one who blessed did so by extending hands, and those who want to receive a blessing did likewise. So if you'd like to receive one, please extend your hands this morning. Go now and follow where Christ calls you. And proclaim the message God gives you. Rest in the hope of God. Avoid becoming bound up in the business of the world. But live in readiness for the inbreaking of the kingdom. May God be your refuge and your glory. May Christ Jesus give you courage for his mission. And may the Holy Spirit empower you in all things. We go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. And uh, thanks for joining us today.